This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 48 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. There's a natural tendency, not just in cybersecurity, to be drawn to bright, shiny objects. If you're a security professional, you've likely had to respond to questions from management and your coworkers about the latest high-profile breach or ransomware incident. For sure, that's part of the job. But how do you make sure you're not spending too much time reacting to the latest threat when you could be strengthening your internal resiliency plans? On today's episode of the Recorded Future podcast, we address the downside of headline chasing and the need for resiliency within security so that basic fundamental tasks don't lead to mass chaos within organizations. We've got two guests today, Zach and Ryan. They're both high-level security professionals at a major financial services organization, and in order to minimize the number of hoops they'd have to jump through to get permission from their employer to appear on our show, we're going to respect their request to keep things on a first-name basis. Stay with us. So I started uh, working in cybersecurity as a developer uh, coming out of school and got some experience with vulnerability scanning and dealing with the data, helping create metrics and and that sort of thing. That's Zach, and again, both he and Ryan have asked us to keep their identities confidential. Quickly realized the power of, you know, correlating data and the need to, to correlate data and information security. Uh, from there, I was given an opportunity to move into the operations space and deal more with threat intelligence. Doing similar work, coordinating data, working closely with SIMS, doing data analysis, and, and ultimately correlating it to, to make threat intelligence. And Ryan, how about you? Got my start quite a while ago, and about 20 years in IT, and moved into basically building and designing monitoring systems uh, and architecting uh, stuff around that. And then it's, from there, I moved into the security side, and then I've been working with Sims probably now for the last yeah, 15 years or so. All right, so let's get into some of the, the meat of the conversation here. Um, we wanted to talk about some of the pitfalls that come with uh, chasing the headlines. Zach, can I start with you? Can you sort of give us an overview when we're talking about this? Uh, what do people find themselves doing? Yeah, so let's, let's first start with defining kind of what I, what I would call headline chasing. And, and that is, you know, as cybersecurity becomes more and more uh, popular, especially for the need, the, the need for cybersecurity, uh, when you're talking critical infrastructure like financial services, healthcare, energy, defense, that kind of thing, uh, it continues to get more attention in the media, right? Which ultimately leads to more attention, more chatter, people assuming certain things based on what they read in the media. Um, so obviously, most headlines are meant to capture people's attention, draw them in, uh, and we see this with the cyber headlines as well. Um, however, we all know typically headlines only represent a portion of the truth. And, you know, it takes some reading, analysis, research, and more to uncover really what the media is, is trying to portray. And Ryan, uh, from your point of view, uh, how do you go about prioritizing as these headlines come over the wire? Uh, how do you decide what needs your attention? So I think that's some of the kind of where I find this topic kind of interesting. So uh, a lot of the work we do with threat intelligence has to do with keeping track of a, a lot of different signals coming in. So you're going to have kind of trust groups. You're going to have threat intelligence platforms. You may have products that you subscribe to. 
uh, you know, you have just a large community of folks that's kind of keeping you up to date as to what's going on. And so what I find is, is that we're constantly watching that signal and then you'll, you're going to get some spikes in it that come through a media headline. And so usually it's going to hit a major news outlet. A vendor's going to start sending an email, you know, kind of through the systems or, you know, different people within a few different companies will start sending some information around. And that's where I really see it come into play is usually when, you know, a senior level of management gets a hold of a headline or something hits uh, one of the major news media outlets. It starts getting a lot of focus really quick. Uh, and then you start catching emails from them saying, hey, what are we doing on this? Or you're going to start to see some of that information uh, come out. So that's kind of where I usually say come up. And then from a prioritization point of view, I suppose, um, what usually happens is, is um, you're going to get into a position where you're, as defenders, we're trying to, to line up our technology in a way to defend a particular asset, a particular entity. Um, and so there's kind of a BAU process with that. There's a different school or there's a particular set of technologies that we've picked to accomplish that mission. And so what's kind of interesting is, is in the headline chasing scenario, it's almost distracting from the core mission, right? And that core mission is that defense. And so you have to have some faith in in the mechanisms that you built, designed, and architected uh, that they're going to execute and perform well. And so from a prioritization perspective, to an extent, some of it is just minimizing the, the turn that can be caused by a senior level manager approaching somebody and saying, hey, what are we doing around this? Whereas if you can kind of build systems to communicate to them quickly or effectively address something and have a quick response on it, you can kind of minimize that turn in the scheme of things. I mean, it strikes me that um, obviously you have a responsibility to answer those questions, particularly if they're coming from higher up people, from the board of directors or, you know, people up the uh, up the chain of command. Um, and yet, like you say, you uh, you can't just necessarily drop everything because uh, the CEO got a text message uh, with a news alert. Yeah. And then that's kind of what we what we see is, is in a lot of cases, we may have looked at a vulnerability or we may have looked at a piece of intel that we got done an initial assessment and kind of come to the conclusion that our, our traditional controls should be sufficient to deal with that threat. And then that's where it's a it's a balancing act that has to kind of be struck. And so to your point, usually it's it's how quickly can we inform someone about that? Or do you have give them a place to go? Right. Like a lot of this is is just making sure that people are informed and they kind of build faith in your system. So I think a part of that is being able to quickly respond to it or give giving some levels of management visibility into systems where they can go check. And I, and I know the, the products that you guys provide give us a little, they give us glimpses of that, right? It gives us a place to send someone to have them looking at an Intel card. It gives us a, a place to uh, start deriving kind of what is the, you know, what is the social media chatter related to this topic? And so a lot of the tools that are coming out nowadays are, are very well designed to give us that kind of initial point to point someone to, uh, to, to kind of give them more comfort with the situation that we're aware of it, we're tracking it, and something's going on with it. Zach, do you have anything to add to that one? Yeah, I think it, it's very similar to uh, Ryan's response, right? It's uh, using the the frameworks that you've already developed, and then basically entrusting, or rather, building trust uh, with with uh, higher level management that you know, Threat Intel is tracking it. But the the challenge is um, tracking it and communicating it at the same time, right? Uh, because uh, the second, uh, as Ryan mentioned, the second that uh, CEO or someone else sees it on their their phone or their their TV, 
you know, we uh, threat intelligence teams begin to get asked questions, and um, it, it distracts from the core mission of researching and, and analyzing and raising up concerns about uh, the correct threats. How do you go about um, evaluating what the various risks are to your systems, to your processes? Um, you know, in other words, um, when a threat comes in, what's the process for determining how much of your attention it actually deserves? I think some of it is understanding, you know, affected systems, right? Uh, that's one aspect to kind of figure out your your threat landscape. You know, things that are are targeting you know, certain industries may not be as, as of much concern um, as if you're in the industry. Rather, you know, you want to pay attention to stuff that's in your, your threat vertical or your industry vertical. And from there, you kind of look at your internal systems, your your applications, right, and, and figure out really uh, are, the, are the latest threats or, or the newest item, uh, is it going to impact you? And, and from there, doing an internal assessment using you know, intelligence and data that you've gathered versus your internal intelligence and and system inventory. It, it's a it's a combination of taking all the different teams that play into a security solution, right? Like, no one person can kind of tackle all of these tasks. You know, we, you know, we like to think that that's the case. And there's always going to be other teams at play. So I, I think the kind of the key component to it is that initial assessment. And so a lot of people will have like a vulnerability team or inventories, or a lot of the goods kind of sound practices that you need because it. it the industry or, or where I see uh, security, it's all about what you know and how you're applying your defenses based on what you know. And so there's a lot of different data points that you know. And I think some of the most critical ones that are sometimes overlooked initially because they're not as, as pretty and as flashy as, you know, um, th- you know, human intelligence or dark web type uh, finds where you may get some hits off something like that would just be internal intelligence. What kind of assets you have? How are they positioned? What kind of controls do you have in place? Do I know what I have on my network? Do I know if I even run any of those products? Do you know, I know what kind of web code is sitting out there. Uh, some basics like that help with that kind of initial assessment. And so you usually are basically trying to take you know, an, an element of data, whether it be like, uh, you know, a phishing vein, something that you're, you're, you're imagining is going to come against a human asset, uh, or is it going to be something that's going to come across like the, you know, the ASA vulnerabilities or something where they're going to go after a piece of infrastructure hardware that's exposed to the internet. So some of it's knowing positioning and then looking at the defenses around that and then kind of directing people to the appropriate teams, right? Because I think that's one thing that sometimes we miss as technical folks is, is making sure that we're encouraging the use of the processes and procedures we have in place, which sometimes mean you need to redirect uh, managers to the appropriate team that who may have a sole function related to that. And so, so that's kind of one of those areas that we see that is interesting when we're talking about some stuff like this. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about resiliency. Uh, this, to me, this seems like one of those things where people think they have a plan in place, but there's that old saying about how you know no plan survives uh, contact with the enemy. Um, when you all are putting resiliency plans in place, what's the process by which you do that? Uh, I mean, I completely agree with that statement. Uh, no plans, a list of stuff that'll never ever happen that way. Uh, and so I think what it, it it goes back to how you train, how you prepare, how you uh, go about your procedures, right? If you make things overly complicated, they're probably not going to pan out well. So you try to keep stuff as streamlined and as simplistic as possible when you go through these um, these pro- these kind of steps and this different information. And so I think when it comes to like an Intel perspective, you try to boil it down to just the basics. What do we know? What don't we know? 
what do we think the impact is and keep it fairly simple. And what that does is that allows us to take some elements of what we're seeing, distill it as much as possible to its simplest form, and then get it to the teams that we need to take an action on it, right? And so I think it's keep it simple is where that really, uh, that you get the resiliency from. You can have a very elegant, well thought out 200 step process, but usually people aren't gonna follow through something that's 200 steps long. So I think by keeping stuff simple, distilling the information down to just the critical components that are needed and then having detail available for when, you know, you get a second to breathe and you can look into something a little bit deeper. So that's kind of where I'd go with that. How about you, Zach? Yeah, very similar. I think part of it is, is trusting your teams in addition to keeping it simple, right? Like uh, you mentioned in his previous answer, the coordinating between multiple teams who have, you know, expertise in certain areas will help when, you know, everything hits the fan and, keeping everybody on deck and, and letting everyone do their job and kind of coordinating a, a group effort to tackle, you know, a very serious issue is can certainly help recover faster and kind of deal with an incident as it arises. You know, there's that saying in, in sports uh, that you practice like you play. And um, I've heard many people say that one of the problems when it comes to resiliency is that it's hard to get people to take time to actually sort of play act through some of these scenarios, you know, to, 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 to stick a microphone in someone's face when they have to, you know, pretend to be talking to the press when, when there's a breach or something like that. Uh, for those kinds of things, for convincing the higher-ups that, that these things are important, how do you approach that? I think there's a few different ways that are interesting when it comes to this. So there's some practical times when you could maybe use a lesser example to exercise the machine and the mechanisms. Hmm. So um, a lot of times you're going to be triaging stuff in and, if it's something that is that is new, that is dangerous, it's unpatched, you know, that's a live scenario. But you may get these kind of, you know, edge cases where it's not necessarily a huge risk or you think that for whatever reason, based on your analysis, that you feel that the company's in, a, in an adequate position. And where I would kind of go with that is, is that I think there's some value in running some exercises like that where you do it live. You take a, an edge case and you just exercise the mechanism. And I would consider that training more so than the actual event because when it really counts, you know, you need everything working. And so you use, I think, some of those lesser examples. And then we've also done, I mean, we've done some tabletop exercises uh, and we're pretty fortunate in some of the management chains that we've had that they do uh, endorse some, some practices uh, where we do get everybody together. We also get multiple teams. Um, even get into other different elements of the business. So we've been pretty fortunate in, in that, but I think some other ways to do it is to just use examples that you see day to day. Yeah, I'll echo some of those uh, those statements and add, add some as well. You know, other areas where we've been able to kind of run through simulations or, or practices, if you will, have been through like some internal competitions as well as some, uh, some friendly competitions outside our organization as well where – uh, you know, you take scenarios uh, like one that you mentioned where you need to get somebody in front of a press or uh, you need uh, to run through a scenario on the internal defense side, right? A new zero day comes out and, you know, what's your next uh, what's your next steps to ensure that your organization is protected? So uh, it's, it's interesting to go through those experiences and, you know, you learn uh, different team building strategies throughout the process in addition to, you know, technical controls and technical uh, weaknesses and where you can you know grow and, and learn from right um the other areas you know going through the 
the table exercises, uh, as Ryan mentioned, and, uh, you know, practicing those, uh, those procedures or those different operations that, you know, many teams plan and organize and putting them into place on the smaller vulnerabilities or, or the smaller threats so that when that next big wanna cry or, or something like that comes up, right, that the teams are prepared and it's not the first time they run through it because that, that's incredibly important and you kind of, you learn, it's a personal growing experience for everybody and it, it helps organizations grow as a team as well. How do you prepare people for uncertainty? I'm thinking about, uh, you know, for example, when Meltdown and Spectre were released, when the information about them became public. Um, and it was so a while, and, and I'd say, you know, even now, we're still sort of figuring out what the long-term impact of them is going to be. Um, how do you put people at ease when you don't have all the answers? I think some of it is the building the trust, like we mentioned earlier, right? So especially for threat intelligence teams that are constantly watching that signal, right? Whether it's Twitter feeds, trust groups, you know, tools like Recorded Future or other other platforms, right, where uh, threat feeds or threat information or just public news is coming into, right? If, if threat intelligence teams can build trust uh, within the organizations that they're on top of it, in certain scenarios, it's okay to say, you know, there's still pending analysis, right? Uh, the entire world doesn't know much about how, uh, you know, how it's or you know technology is going to respond to a certain situation and and that's okay when the analysis isn't there but you know without that that trust or without that support from an organization it's sometimes that answer of you know we don't know right now is is kind of scary but i think it really boils down to you know trust and deep analysis and uh, knowing that you know if the data is out there we're gonna uh, threat intelligence teams are gonna find it and they're gonna provide uh, the content that, you know, helps uh, people making the business decisions comfortable, right? There's a lot of interesting components to Meltdown Inspector, in my opinion. One of the ones is, is that uh, this is a a new type almost of a vulnerability, something that we hadn't typically had to deal with. And so I think it threw some curveballs in that were interesting, and I think they still are interesting in the fact that this is one of the, the few instances where multiple layers of patching, I think, was being applied. And when I look at it, traditional vulnerability systems, most of them are designed around, you look for one particular uh, file being installed, you test one particular method, and, and you're covered. Whereas this one had everything from you know multiple different browsers that were patching for some elements of it you had the os patching and then you had uh, some some hardware fixes also being applied to it and so i think it was one of those scenarios that it really challenged our current thinking of where we sit and what we have to be concerned with and how we report something as being patched or or we say we're successfully covered for something and i mean a dynamic that came up often i know in our ventures was the, the the cloud element right so i mean we all love buzzwords and cloud is one cloud is one of those but there's some virtualized infrastructures that our companies are using and then when you start talking about some particular vendors uh some large vendors that that service that need um you all of a sudden opened yourself up to a risk that existed all along but i don't think it was understood at the time and so i think it goes back to what you're saying is, is you have to look at uh, management and, and deal with the reality of the situation that says we have limited information. This is what we know right now. You know, it was released kind of ahead of the head of schedule. So everybody was kind of playing catch up up front. And I think you, you tell them what you know and you tell them and, you, and you're kind of firm about what you don't know. Um, and then you advise them based on what we were seeing. In a lot of cases, I think this came out and it was rated very low 
from a scoring mechanism, depending on what vulnerabilities uh, rating system that you were using. And then it kind of worked its way up over time. Uh, and then there were some more questions being proven or asked that, you know, required more investigation and required some elements of, of the business realizing that, that the second you decided to deploy some of your infrastructure into a cloud space system, you gave up some control of that infrastructure for the convenience and the rapid deploy natures of them or for whatever reasons. And so that was part of the, the architecture that you approved. And so, you know, it gives them some things to think about related to the vulnerabilities. And then some of it is the same. You, you have to have faith in the technical solutions that you have, and then you have to start to look at well, what other best practices did you layer on top of your architecture? You know, how are you coding the code that sits on that box? Did you have any data that was sitting at rest? You know, this one was interesting because there's an element of, of pulling information out of memory, right? So you may not have been able to cover every angle, but then you had to start weighing that against, well, what is it that I'm hosting? Am I hosting static content on that system? You know, what kind of connectivity does it have? And so it was a great exercise, I think, to, to stretch where companies went and how they looked at vulnerabilities. Uh, and so some of that is just dealing with unknowns, but some of it is also having them using it as a reflection point to move on. So that's kind of where I think it's a very interesting set of vulnerabilities. It's a very interesting genre of vulnerabilities that I think is going to be exciting over the course of this year for sure. Yeah. Let's talk about threat intelligence uh, in general as it fits into the work that you all do. Um, let me start with you, Zach. Um, you know, when you think about threat intelligence and the place it has in the work you do defending your organization, where does it fit in? How do you describe it? So I think it, it fits in with uh, many different areas, right? So one of the big ones is is new threat research. Uh, so when you talk about these new vulnerabilities, such as the Spectre and Meltdown or the WannaCries or, or the ones that we talk about hitting the headlines, right? People, non-technical people or non-security people even have heard about these vulnerabilities, right? So these are the ones that, uh, not that others aren't, but these are the ones where threat intelligence plays a huge role where, uh, whether it's threat intel teams uh, doing some research or automated threat feeds or trust groups or whatever it may be, being able to dig into that information and paint a picture of, yeah, here's what we know, here's what could be affected, uh, using some of the internal intelligence we talked about to, to really lay it out for an organization and, and kind of really paint a picture of impact and determine you know, business decisions based on intelligence we've collected. I think the other area it really plays into um, into organizations, especially with our work, is you know uh, sim use cases or or developing content to to catch badness within an organization. Um, so you can uh, use the threat intelligence and use the data, right, the da threat data and threat information that is collected through all those signals that we talked about earlier, and and really applying it to internal applications, internal systems internal logs and figuring out impact or potential impact and, and you can get into all the other buzzwords or, or you know new topics that uh, of our interest where hey, you can apply uh, behavior analytics and machine learning and those kinds of things to really kind of use the power of machines to, to catch you know, badness that you'd need a team of you know 20 30 people if not more to to do without some of that advanced um, technology and, and computational power using threat intelligence. And Ryan? 
So, yeah, I mean, threat intelligence is kind of a very broad topic for me. And a lot of this stuff, I think, has existed under different names. So I boil a lot of it down to you have information and data, and that's what you start with. And it's how you apply what you know. And so from, from my perspective, I tend to take a more broad stroke or broad picture of it that says a lot of this stuff is about what we know. So when I look at threat intelligence, it's everything from what am I seeing on my current network? What do I have coming in from my threat feeds? What are people talking about? What vulnerabilities are coming through the system? And it's when you take all of that and start framing it into pictures to, to derive an action and become actionable intel, where a lot of this stuff starts to find value. And so some of that is used to just uh, inform folks to make sure that they're up to date with the current threats and um, that they have what they need to respond to other managers within the company even. So that's arming a person there with actionable information. It can also be driving for, for change. I mean, we, we talked a minute ago about uh, some major vulnerabilities that are, that are kind of a new variety that we haven't seen before. And so that's where I would look at threat intelligence and say part of it was knowing that it was out there early on, trying to keep people informed, trying to keep people apprised of how that's changed over time, and then using that to drive a longer-term result that says maybe we revisit how we deal with vulnerabilities. Maybe we look into our capacities of how quickly we could answer to something. And so that's turning uh, the threat intel that we have into longer-term strategic goals uh, related to that. And then some of them are going to be operational. Some of them are going to kick over to a sim and uh, and expect the, you to kind of kick out matches. It's also some of our job is to reassure folks that have spent a lot of money on these solutions that invest a lot of money and time and labor that these things are working. And one of the ways where I think threat intelligence gets its best press is typically in that role where you show where we're consuming information from multiple sources. It's crossing our infrastructure and we're taking the appropriate actions that I think those are the ones that get us the most visibility. You know, the day-to-day -day stuff is just what we do and do to get by. Uh, and it's not necessarily always that exciting. I mean, you may put in a whole bunch of raw data points that never cross. It doesn't mean that you're not attempting to make actionable intel. It just means that in this scenario, it didn't happen to cross. Driving towards an action, you're trying to keep people informed. You're trying to give them the best information. And you're trying to position someone for the best win, right? I mean, we ask a lot of analysts that do a job that that most of us don't want to do there day in and day out, and they have the hardest job in the world. You're trying to get them to look at something for a very point in time, and you want to get them the best information that you can, and you want to aid them in any way that you can. And I think that's where uh, some of that threat intel comes in from that perspective, too. I, I want to give somebody the best opportunity to make the right call at the right time so that we get the optimal results, and it ends in a win of a defense kind of of what we're after. Another thing that I find interesting is just the, the need for continual education, right? Like, uh, and it doesn't have to be formal education, just the need to always, uh, I guess, continual learning or the desire for con continual learning. Because, you know, we, we talk about things like the new, uh, new type of vulnerability and, and new types of uh, analysis, whether it be machine learning, AI, or whatever, whatever the new trend is, right? Uh, continually staying up on, on different types of analysis techniques and, and different uh, technical details or technical systems to really be able to understand and paint the picture that we talk about to, to make those intelligent decisions. Our thanks to Zach and Ryan for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, 
Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.